to see you too. I am so excited today because uh, you have a phenomenal setup at the moment. You know, I don't know who's available to join us live. If you're here, please say hi. We won't be able to get to see everybody from LinkedIn either because the, the count is not always there, but do say hi. Um, so George and I met, I would say almost five years ago. And is that right, George? Maybe, maybe, maybe like, yeah, five, five, five and a half. Yeah. About five-ish years ago. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. 2016. <laughs> I know time really flies. I remember. Yeah. Um, so basically a little bit about your background. I went to Harvard. I live in Boston for, for those of you who are unclear about that. Um, so you were introduced to me through Alexander Bono International. Thank you, Bering Cosmo. And I was able to go to Harvard and then go to your, what do you call that? Like a practice hall or like a recital room or something? Yeah, it was like a little salon uh, room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you were, I remember you picked up the keys and, and then, you know, you took me into this room where you practice. It was such a meditative experience, something that I never took for granted. And remember going to see you perform, you were at the time, a classical musician. And then since then, real quick, the 10,000 foot view is that at one point, you know, you were a working musician. At one point you moved back to California where you grew up and we met up again three years ago during my documentary shoot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Venice beach. It was so cool. And you were working on robotics. So you were an entrepreneur at the time and fast forward a few years later, now you found your way back to music and you even talk about how music is now the only way for you to share your story, where you find your peace, your happiness. So I'm just so glad you're here. No, thank you for having me. And it's just so amazing as a friend and a fan to watch your your podcast grow. Like, that's just kind of cool. And like, uh, you know, you really were one of the early ones in, in the podcast world because it, it didn't really pick. I mean, podcasts were popular, but it's not like the way it is today. I mean, podcasts, um, like I, I listen to so many podcasts because like, you know, being in L.A., you drive a lot. Mm. And um, actually, what I used to do was I would play movies on my iPhone. I, I wouldn't watch them. So don't worry, I'm not breaking mm. any laws. But I would listen to the movies like an mm -hmm. audio, like a like like a podcast. But then when podcasts became like a thing and there was a show format and they're incredibly entertaining. And so so that was just cool to see your your podcast take off. That was that was super awesome. So so yeah, it's amazing what's happened throughout time. <laughs> I know it's it it's really is amazing. I mean, uh to follow your journey to see, I mean, prior to those conversations, I think about all the pivots that you've made today, still as a very young musician. Uh, and it's just phenomenal to watch and it's so fascinating. So I'm so thrilled that most of the people who follow me are creative entrepreneurs, content creators, and I don't see you as, you know, anything other than that, right? You create content, you're now on Spotify, you started your own uh, journey on YouTube as well. And uh, I'm, I'm just glad we reunited and really talk about our own journey in different ways, how you found your path. And I'm sure that's still evolving and changing, but I mean, you're sitting in front of a beautiful piano right now. And we're, for people who are joining us, say hi. We haven't figured out exactly how we're going to handle this, but we're just going to go with the flow. And yeah, George, could you kind of explain maybe like how you transition your music? You know, when we talk about classical music, what did you used to play versus what you play now and how you make the kind of, you know, bridge, bridge the differences and all that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so I was like a super classically trained concert pianist. And I think like, um, it was really hard to be at that level. Mm. And I was not a prodigy. So I, I had to work. And, and I was a really bad student when I was young, like I played an hour a week for a really long time. And it wasn't really until college, I decided to really become a serious musician. Mm -hmm. And I, I dropped out of Harvard for a year and I studied piano and conducting. And like, I just remember the f early days, I would just play like, like scales, like this slow. I mean, like really boring stuff where the hand. And, and like, you know, it, it was just like, so, so then like, you know, 
I I I don't think I practiced ten thousand hours, but I got like I think I have like a good six thousand under my belt, and like so then <laughs> and then after when I started touring just classical, you know, I would play things like you know. Beethoven or you know, Chopin or something. And and like, you know, I did that for a bit, but I, I was always a very I love collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I think I at heart was always a composer. I always wanted to say what I wanted to say. And I found that to be at odds with the classical music industry even though you're taught growing up to be an artist you have to be yourself and Mm -hmm. bring something unique to the table especially in american piano pedagogy like you're supposed to be as faithful to the score but Mm -hmm. no one was alive when these composers were alive so it's all guess it's like very educated guesses Mm -hmm. um but then your individually your individuality gets robbed and unless you're like super famous where people don't care what you do because they go to see a concert to see you until you reach that level of fame. It's, it's like the amount of criticism you would get for being, for taking risks was crazy. And in fact, mental from a mental health standpoint, incredibly negative. And I just became, uh, I really bummed out by the industry and Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't having fun anymore. And so that's kind of why I stopped, I stopped touring. I mm-hmm. went into like design and tech. Um, and how I fell back into music was, uh, you know, partly from a breakup. So, you know, those, <laughs> those, those drive musical inspiration a lot. Um, but also uh, this, I think like, I always loved music, but I, I've always wanted to improvise and, and compose. Mm-hmm. And it's a really hard skill to develop and I was always jealous of jazz guys. They can just go like. Like they can just do that, like without thinking or like that you'll hum a tune. Like if you're like, oh, the Bar- you know, the Barney theme song. Oh, like, like, like. Oh. You know, and I was just like, oh, man, I wish I could do that. And and during the pandemic, kind of two things happened. I one was the emotionally distraught and then the whole world, you know, was in lockdown. And so I feel like I was so emotionally and spiritually robbed <laughs> from my world, my brain of like that part of your brain that was creativity that mm-hmm. you, you draw like the energy you draw from to be creative was completely depleted and decimated. I was like, well, I have nothing to do. I didn't have a day job. I was living with my parents and I was like, well, you know, at this point, what can I do that I really want to do? And I was like, I really want to be able to improvise. And I, I realized the only way to do that, like to do it like, well and quickly is to have an innate understanding of the instrument where whatever i think of in my head i can play Mm -hmm. the second thing was i have to be able to compose in my head and hear everything before i play and so i would just to practice um i would like sing a tune in my head and then try to see if i can play instantly on the piano and there was a lot of trial and error there or i would like when I, when I'm dreaming, I would dream about playing the piano. And I started to notice that when I played piano in my dreams, the, I don't have perfect pitch, but it matched the keys in real life. Like if I'm in my dream, I'm playing like, like I, it's actually the same note. It's like Mm. a Pixar movie. And so I was like, okay, I think there's a subconscious understanding and um and then i would also like mental practice like i would take a score and just look at it mm-hmm. and i would practice pieces in my head like imagining where the fingers would go and the pedaling 
And I think that with a combination of, I love playing guitar and I, I like took this online guitar class um, from Brian Sinister, who's uh, one of the guitar players and composers for Avenged Sevenfold, the metal band. And he talked about how to improvise on the guitar. And I kind of took all of that. And then one day I came to the piano and then I just started playing. like something clicked in my head and this was like april of last year and then i was like oh crap i can improvise now and then all of a sudden i can hear music in my head and just play it and like when i write music now i can just sit there and just like listen to it in my head and be like Mm -hmm. okay i'll write that and like this has never happened to me in my whole life and Um, then it happened that was uh-huh. And then it, happened, oh. it just, it literally just happened. Like, I can't explain just one day woke up now. And I was like, I could, I could play anything. Like, like there's a really difficult exercise in theory of doing a des- descending fifth sequence. It sounds like this. That's a very difficult uh, theory exercise in in harmony in Western classical harmony, but I don't know. After that thing clicked, I could just go like, like sometimes to practice, I just go like. from will and i was just like oh wow this is this is insane so so yeah that's how i transitioned that was kind of like the transition process of going from just playing you know to like doing my own stuff so yeah (laughs) okay now you've set the bar really high i would like future live stream guests to uh basically welcome themselves or me to the show this way and it is very soothing and i started listening to your new album peach something what was it again peach oh tree. under the peach tree oh i have the i have the vinyl oh check it out guys what a treat whoa that's the vinyl and then i i collab with this amazing artist maggie chung uh taiwanese american oh, wow. artist uh to do the cover and, wow uh, and then the vinyl itself like it's kind of cool like it has like part of the album cover on it. Wow, so cool! Yeah. I mean, do do people buy these days buy the vinyl, or is this like a collector's edition or something? Yeah, I actually sold out. I should have I should have made more. Um, I only made like eight. I made twenty of them, and then I kept one, and Maggie kept one. And oh I man! I didn't think I was gonna sell a lot because. Excuse me. This is such a departure from my past music career. Like it was basically rebuilding my fan base because my old fan base was like, you know, we want to hear. You know, like all the old classics and then Mm. like this new like the new my new audience, I'm trying to convince them, you know, like stuff like this. pretty drastic shift you know mm-hmm. and, and i feel like um so it's like rebuilding a whole new fan base and and uh so i didn't think we were going to sell out we sold out uh i keep saying we well yeah I, 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 technically it was me and maggie but like I, like I, we sold out in like in, in a day we sold out all 18 copies and then i oh, realized the i should have mm-hmm. on the vinyl i realized i should have made a hundred 
uh, like, but you know, you, the process of an entrepreneur, you know, you've yeah. followed the lean startup model, you, uh, or the ideo human centered design process, you ideate, you prototype, you put it out in the world, you learn from it and you keep learning. So I, I was like, okay, now next time I know I'll do, I'll do a hundred, I'll make a hundred vinyl. Um, but yeah, yeah. There's so much to break down here, right? Like, I'm so glad people are going to be watching this now or later because there's, to me, I mean, the the cross disciplines of music and content creation, blogging, podcasting, YouTube, frankly, it's all the same. You know, I don't know why we separate yeah. the disciplines so much, but what, what, first of all, George, there's so much to break down. What you just said about pivoting from one subject, one topic to another. That's scary because you've already built an audience. You've been a working musician for a long time. Classical music yeah. is drastically different. And even within classical music, and there's there are different disciplines, different styles. And now yeah. you've sort of left your old audience as a concert pianist into this new genre. I mean, how, uh, let me start with one question at a time. I mean, what did you see as the trends? Like, how did you know that? How did you know the metrics that people were leaving and new people were coming? And where did where did these new people come from? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I so like in terms of my music, it is honestly what I like playing and how mm -hmm. I think. And so, like some people, like like I've been playing a lot on Clubhouse or, um, or I've been playing a lot. Like I, I've just been doing a lot of stuff online. And mm -hmm. someone asked me like, oh, do you play this way because it's more trendy? And I said, I never thought about it that way. I was like, no, I play it this way because I like playing it. I like playing the piano this way. And I, so I never, I, I'm really proud to say as an artist, nothing I did in the transition process was to pander to an audience. It was, mm -hmm. it was just me as an artist. Like it was, so I guess from an entrepreneurship standpoint, it was the most un- an entrepreneur thing to do i did not listen to the market i did not try to find product market fit you mm -hmm. know if mm -hmm. i was trying to find product market fit i would be like wearing anti-anti-social club i would like just have a ton of beats and like i would not mm -hmm. use an acoustic piano but i wasn't i wasn't thinking about an audience so that's the first thing the second thing like to, to more of to your question is i noticed when i put when I put it out there that I was not really playing classical anymore, mm -hmm. I lost a lot of, like, I lost, I, I lost followers on Instagram. That was okay. like the first thing. Yeah. Uh, lost followers on Facebook. I lost contacts in the industry. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so like gigs I used to get that were really easy started to disappear. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I look at my, like Spotify and Instagram data. And my demographic is strictly 25 to 35, like very, like a huge percentage of my audience, which is the audience classical music venues desperately need. Mm -hmm. And they were turning me down because mm -hmm. I was not, like they would ask me, are you going to play, are you going to play a Chopin scherzo or are you going to play like the third ballad or And I was like, no. Uh, I'm gonna play. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm gonna play a song I wrote, mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna do like like I love playing "Somewhere Over the Rainbow." They're like, oh, okay. Well, you know, if there's an opening, we'll let you know. And so, so those were kind of the, the immediate consequences. Mm -hmm. um, but I did notice like with, with my new fans and yeah, I'm not, I'm not famous. So like it's, it's I know it's like compared to a really well-known concert pianist, it's not a lot, but to me, I'm just super grateful for these fans. Like I've never had a fan experience where people have been helping me on their behalf. Like they, mm -hmm. like they are just like, like I've had fans send me gifts like just out of the blue i'm like wow this is amazing or um people i've never met before promote my album mm -hmm. or um like someone introduced me to a performance opportunity um or like i've never had this kind of love from the fans and like if if i knew this could exist when i was starting out my career as a concert pianist 
<laughs> I would have totally gone this direction without a doubt. And then I, I have one, I guess every, every entrepreneur or creative has their like regrets on not taking initiative. Like I didn't take initiative on digital <laughs> in 2015. I was super lazy about it. Right. And now that I look back, had I taken advantage of that, the pivot would have been a lot easier because right now I'm, I'm still building the audience from scratch. Mm-hmm. And because I put so much of my career on building other businesses and building their social media presence and like building those business goals, like mm-hmm. I now have to do that with myself, which is kind of weird, but also to, I know how expensive it is to grow an audience. So it's just like, oh man, if I capitalized the, the early wave mm-hmm. in 2015, it'd be easier now, but like that's, that's way in the past. So. But that's a really interesting point for people who are watching this, you know, I mean, it's so easy for me to want to talk about this uh, right now because yesterday I recorded like a solo episode in between. So to answer a question about what was hard uh, for me as a content creator at the beginning and one of which are some of the things that that you reflected uh, upon. I started the podcast in 2014 at that time, I was looking back to think, I wish I started doing this when I was 20. I mean, when I was in school, why did I wait until I'm like 31 years old or something? Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And um, But I'm really glad that at some, one point we started doing this. And if you're watching this thinking, I don't want to be judged. Um, I, I don't feel like I have enough to offer to the world to build an audience. Frankly, it's never it's never too early to do this. And so, yeah. George, yeah. So, so what are your thoughts on learnings in terms of uh, some of the things people don't know, right? Like it's expensive. You mentioned it's expensive to build an audience. What do you mean by that? So like there's different ways to build it. Organic would be the dream scenario, which is, which is what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I've done for music wise has been organic. So it's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And yeah, I don't have a blue check mark, but like I'm really proud of the following we have mm-hmm. like you know, we have a good group of fans who are really intellectual who are funny and charismatic and thoughtful and really good listeners so that's the best fan and artist can ask for is like people who really care about what you're doing and what other people are doing um and i'm gonna clarify organic. sorry george i'm gonna clarify a few things which is you've gone these you've started these live concerts on instagram that's one way that i've seen you being fairly active and consistent with building an audience. Is that, is that accurate? Or were there other channels you're exploring too? Yeah. 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 So like on the organic side, um, the most expensive thing about organic is time. So like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I spent a lot of time doing Instagram live. Mm -hmm. In fact, my first album Sonic Sanctum, uh, is I recorded that in one Instagram live session in one take. I remember, and the whole album's improvised. I remember putting it on. I only, I think only three people tuned in who I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I just told those three people, I'm going to record a whole album in one take. And you three people are going to keep me accountable to finish it. Because as a classical musician, when we do recordings, if it's not 100% perfect, we freak out. So Mm -hmm. I had to like break that kind of horrible world of judgment. But anyway, so yeah, so uh, aside from Instagram Live, a big driver has been Clubhouse. Like mm-hmm. Clubhouse has been so amazing for my career. And um, it's starting to die down a little bit because the popularity is not as strong as it was a few months ago. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm indebted to that app. Like the, oh God, if we're using marketing terms. the No, funnel, this is great. <laughs> the lead generation from... Like with a, the user funneling from Clubhouse to Instagram was incredibly successful. Like, but I I never thought of it as a funnel until mm-hmm. like the results were too obvious to ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, that was and one, yeah. yeah, so like I before the pandemic, I think I had like six hundred Instagram followers. Okay, and now I have about nineteen hundred. Okay, and and like yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot like compared to like. I don't know. Long, long probably has a couple million, but like (laughs) it's, but I, that was all organic with no budget. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And like, that's, and I believe I earned every follower. Like Mm -hmm. every follower is a human being that I I think I've like seen somehow through Instagram or clubhouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, I would open up a clubhouse room. I would play piano for like five hours straight and I would be the host and I would take requests. Like people would request like, Oh, I want studio Ghibli, you know? 
right now house with Newcastle. Or like Star Wars. Or Harry Potter. Or La La Land. I would like improvise people's stories or moods and like and wait a minute for anybody who's watching yeah. right now if you guys have any uh, song requests please leave leave us a comment yeah yeah and then like like people would ask like oh do something in f minor so i'd be like like improvise something in uh, f minor and mm -hmm. and like i would do that for four or five hours and then after the session i would get 40 more instagram followers and so that's what so that's like you know 10 10 an hour which is like very very bad like if you want to use like yeah instagram terms it's like uh, it's a very bad uh ctr or kpi <laughs> but like right, right. but you know i know it was bad but I, like i didn't pay a dime and so that's why like I worked really hard to get those 1900 people and like uh I I, I wasn't thinking about the number but like mm -hmm. I when I started seeing my Instagram grow like I wasn't paying attention to Clubhouse my Clubhouse was growing on its own right. and I, I was not paying attention to it and then Instagram was growing and then one of my friends DM me he's like dude you just passed a thousand yeah and I was like really and I was like I had I wasn't paying attention and then after a thousand I was like oh shoot this is like a real audience generation platform wow I need to take advantage of it so clubhouse has been really great to me um and just like uh I did a couple of brand collab concerts on the internet like like live stream that has helped a little bit mm -hmm. um I partnered with my old business partner at giant robot who's who's actually more like my sensei i like i really look up to him and he he gave me his instagram to play music for the giant robot community every sunday and we've been doing that every week since the pandemic even still doing now. it yeah wow. and so he has a pretty sizable audience and like i've had the, like so many crazy people have tuned in to that live session like you know like uh like tamlin tomita the actor um mm -hmm. Kim Jong-gi, the artist, um, you know, like uh, Joe Han from Linkin Park. Like, I've seen them like tune in and it's surreal. Like, you know, I'm playing music for all these people. It's a really good feeling. Um, wow. So, yeah, I think those were all the kind of different ways. I didn't do a paid ad. I did. I, I've never for my music, never did a paid media campaign. Um, and I could have like I know how to there is a way to brute force it through paid media like mm -hmm. like whether it's google ads or facebook ads or instagram ads targeted ads right you you create all these different a b tests to test audience demographic behavior interest gender uh you know like location mm -hmm. and then you you do two weeks of those tests you do a hundred dollars per bucket and then you take the highest performing one then you change your budget to like 500 a day and like there's a very methodical way to do it but i figured now, if everything's truly organic and people follow me because they actually like the stuff, mm -hmm. um, then, then like, if there is money behind it, it'll just be the greatest gasoline, right? Like, then it will just mm -hmm. take off. And so I feel like I don't really have a goal in terms of social media following, but, mm -hmm. like, a good goal for this year would be, like, if I can get to 5,000 by the end of the year... And if I could on Spotify, if I can get to 3000 followers, that would be very more than satisfied. And that's like for organic, that's a pretty difficult goal. But hey, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know how sophisticated um, everyone is when it comes to advertising promotion mm -hmm. right now. So I'd love to see, you know, if you're watching this, like, did that make sense? Or can we elaborate a bit more on the definitions? But here's the thing, I think some of the takeaways as George has learned in the past year, maybe year and a half, is that 
we are, you know, it's easy for us to want a blueprint blueprint to say that we want to go on certain platforms. Okay, that worked for Faye, right. that worked really, really well for George. But realize we're telling these stories retrospectively. I know that for me, for instance, YouTube has worked out really well. I wish I got on YouTube when I started this podcast in 2014. I did not. I didn't start until late 2019. I'm like, damn, I just missed that boat. Like, you know, I, I missed the opportunity to start early. Um, but for George, I mean, Clubhouse was great. For my colleague, Michael O'Brien, Clubhouse was great. Mm. Um, yeah, so I yeah. think right? We have to, we owe that to ourselves to experiment. But secondly, I want to say is one thing I learned from Seth Godin, I learned a lot of things from him. But one thing I realized, it, you got to be careful when and, and how often you look at your stats, because sometimes, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. right, they're not helpful. Because you look at for me to look at YouTube, often, I can think of, oh, I, I should really just produce more zoom and virtual meeting videos, they always get picked up right away. I can see the trend. But the moment I talk about entrepreneurship, how to make money, or even YouTube growth, YouTube's like, no, 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 that's not for you. You should do something else. Like if the algorithms can manipulate you as a content creator to do what they want. Oh, but I totally. think, right, ultimately, like what we summarized here is uh, that you have to know what you want. And, and to be true to yourself, it's much easier said than done, for sure. So um, and actually, George, I would like to get a little practical here that going on Clubhouse mm -hmm. with as a musician is probably not the most trivial thing. So could you could you talk about your setup for Clubhouse? Because essentially, it's the same for live stream, you're coming in really clear right now, like, how are you able to do that? Where do you place your microphone? What is the microphone you're using at the moment? Yeah, so I for for this Zoom, I have two Neumann U87 AIs pointed at the piano mm -hmm. that I got in the eighth grade because Guitar Center put the wrong price on them, and I I, I actually saved up all my money to buy a guitar, and I went to Guitar Center, and you know a Neumann U87 AI is almost five thousand dollars a piece, so that's ten thousand dollar mic set. It's very expensive. But they put they put two thousand dollars for both. Oh my they, goodness! They like put the wrong price. And California state law, whatever price you advertise, you must sell. <laughs> and so I just bought it because and like oh, I walked home God. with no guitar, mm -hmm. and I just bought these like really nice mics, and I had no audio interface. But I was like, yeah. I got it. And like I've been using these mics ever since. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I have that, and then. And then I used to have it go through an iRig to my iPad and it was like super mm -hmm. sophisticated. But there's like this thing in design where it's the difference between a designer and an artist. An artist is striving for some kind of ideal thing mm -hmm. and a designer is striving for what works for a person. Mm. And so I did it. It's so much work to set up for Clubhouse with the iRig. Yeah. I, I tried, I did a fidelity test because this is a handmade Steinway. You know, this this piano was the piano they used in La La Land. So this is the piano Ryan Gosling played. And and it's, I'm, it's on loan from Steinway. So at Steinway and Sons, thank you for letting me borrow this. Beautiful Wait a minute. Piano. This is the actual piano or just another model of what? I, no, it's the. This is the. If, if you like listen to the recording, it sounds exactly the same. It's kind of creepy. Um, so like they recorded on this piano and they also used it and uh, in the movie. And so like, uh, uh, so like it's a beautiful piano in person. It's the best model. O, like a grand size is like a, almost six feet. It's the best. O I've ever played in my life, but through the, through, even through the eye rig and my expensive mics, you can't really tell. And so like, I would get feedback. People would think like, Oh, what electric keyboard are you using? Cause it's amazing. And I'm like, mm -hmm. Oh no, shit. this is a handmade Steinway built by 180 craftspeople. <laughs> but like yeah. they just equated it to a Casio and that sounded like, that was like, okay. And that kind of feedback mm -hmm. made me, let me do a test where I just use my iPhone mic yeah. and I had the same audience retention. So yeah. at that point, I was just like, screw setting everything up yeah. and spending 20 minutes just figuring out all this mic stuff and doing leveling. I just use my iPhone now because the, the storytelling is more important than the fidelity. Like mm -hmm. if you have something to say and it's potent, 
then who cares about the fidelity? And it makes me think about those horrible, horrible recordings that people got in the 50s and 60s of like bebop players where they would drill a hole in the roof because they couldn't get into the gig and they would drop the world's crappiest microphone to get a bootleg <laughs> recording of the live performance. And the recordings were awful. But man, those records are legendary, like of Charlie Parker just going off and crazy or Miles Davis when he was playing fast stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. um, and I felt I thought it reminded me of that experience where people don't really care about fidelity mm-hmm. if you have a really strong voice and it's meant to be heard. So I, I think like that's that was like the moment from where I realized, yeah, I don't need a fancy setup. So for Clubhouse, I literally just use my iPhone. I don't I don't hook it up to anything. So that's like that's a conclusion that a lot of people don't listen to whether i don't know whether you're meditation teacher or you're a singer even you know you're a musician uh and for me as a broadcaster look you you don't need to fancy up the the setup and in retrospect i mean the lights i I didn't have an elgato light i did not have a you know 4k camera and you start storytelling especially at the beginning you're practicing so with that said, I want to pull in one of the audience questions from Malcolm yeah. O'Brien. In, re- in regards to your music creation, do you have an aha moment that you pull inspiration from? Or do you say, I'm going to make some music now and have some deep thoughts on what you know, what you or what I want to create? What are your thoughts? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, inspiration comes from everywhere. I, I think I used to be a really big pre-planner. I used to think ahead all the time. Like... Mm-hmm. I'm going to be like when I was in the business world, I honestly, my goal was to become like Mark Zuckerberg. Like that was like my goal. I was stupid. Yeah. as a kid. Um, and like, but now with, I don't know what it is with this kind of music making. I'm now in the state of, I'm open to anything in the present. Like mm-hmm. I have no thinking about the future. So I think that allows me to be inspired by many things at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and songs come into my head randomly like i was talking to someone on clubhouse and all of a sudden i was just like while they were talking i was muting my mic and just going like i was just like i doodle like you know how you doodle on a pen Mm -hmm. and paper i doodle on the piano sometimes so like even when i'm talking i can i can still play but this is all subconscious playing I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing. But then while I was doing that, I, I stumbled into. And I was like, oh, crap, that's a song. <laughs> right. From talking yeah. to someone or like I had a dream. And in the dream, I was on the piano. I, you know, because you never know when you enter and leave a dream. But like when I entered the dream, I was already at the piano and I was going. I was like, oh, that's a song. Mm. And uh, or sometimes there's an art, there's an artist that you love and then you you copy them and then you form your own style. Like I love the way Hiromi Yurahara plays Blackbird and she does it her way. And then I came up with my version, like instead of going, I would start with. I created my own version. So it's just, it's, I think there's just endless ways to pull inspiration from. I, I will say though, the, the one that's more confined, like a designer is film composing. Like when I write for film, like I'm working on a documentary right now. Um, it's funny. Like I, I, I composed most of the score and, and like, it wasn't right for the movie. The director was like, yeah, it doesn't work. And you have to like go back and redo it, but you get a bunch of feedback. Mm-hmm. And that kind of film composing reminds me of doing like agency design work, yeah. right? Like you have a wireframe, mm-hmm. your client gives you feedback, you do iteration of it, and then your client gives you feedback again, you redo it until you deliver the final version. And film composing, film scoring is very much like design, design iteration. So that one, you draw inspiration from the film, 
but the tunes that you come up with the movie like uh like this one movie i did for the salt and pepper biopic like like i knew it had to be like hip-hoppy mm-hmm. and hip-hop likes to do a lot of like likes that chord progression a lot and so uh I, like i was just like like watching the movie i was like oh what do i write as the main theme and then and then i just thought of like and that was just the main that was the idea and i was like oh that works and like it was like it's uplifting enough but dramatic enough all the elements and then you can like change it you can make it like sadder you can go like or you can make it uplifting like you can go you know you can modify it really easily because it's so simple and you know that came from that came from the movie subject watching the movie having inspiration from the genre and then mm-hmm. also from the practical standpoint as a film composer, like what is that theme or motive that I can easily mold to be the thread for the entire movie? Because like you'll notice movies you watch that have good music, there's a thread. Mm-hmm. And then movies you watch where you forget about the music, like the Avengers, like like all of Marvel is like, aside from the Avengers theme song, and actually the music composed for the f- the. F- the f- comic book flip in the beginning of the movie it's not very memorable music right 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 it's not very like star wars yeah so anyways, um so yeah <laughs> i want to i mean you've done a lot it, again i think i want to call out that maybe george co is not your household name maybe you haven't heard of george prior to this and probably. um probably not but uh i think what you're also hearing about is number one his parents probably very happy about paying all the tuition and and fees for his early, I don't know, piano lessons. But number two is that you've really built a career in ways that you wanted. So um, could you talk to us, speak to us a little bit about the career side of things? How are you able to now getting gigs to compose for movies? I also want to just maybe do a little bit brainstorm. There's so many podcasts out there, live stream. Are you thinking about composing music for these new age creators as well like how, how do you get these gigs yeah. um yeah that's a great question firstly my parents are not thrilled uh, <laughs> that i i mean i did piano out of necessity i hated piano i hated like, even in college early parts of college i wasn't like i liked it kind of like you know but i wasn't like i'm gonna be a piano player uh, but mm. uh, you know i so my parents paid for it for utility like help you get into college slash my mom's dream was to be a concert pianist. So like it was kind of like that Asian projection kind of mental health, uh, bad for you thingy. Um, but the, yeah, so uh, I, I, yeah. Um, so I think, I think my mom is proud of me, mm-hmm. which like, you know, when an Asian parent says they're proud of you, it's like, Oh, wait, are you dying tomorrow? No, no, no. Is that why you're telling me like, no, it's like, it's like you, I've, Mm-hmm. I've only heard my mom. My mom said that to me once my whole mm-hmm. life. I've never heard it from my dad. And, and like, uh, you know, so like, I know my dad's not thrilled. I'm a musician, but whatever, it's fine. But I, I think like in terms of the career, like how am I getting these opportunities to be honest? I used to approach career like a type, a, uh, Ivy league business minded person. Like mm-hmm. I'd be super aggressive and like, like I would get the sale, you know, because mm-hmm. um, that was the way I was taught from my father because he's an entrepreneur and he was an immigrant and he was heavily discriminated against. And I was discriminated against in corporate, not like him, but like because that was the 70s. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I faced a lot of racism, uh, ageism uh, in, in corporate and in the tech world and uh you know so i was very aggressive but i realized you know going through therapy and continuing to go to therapy 
that I I'm a type B personality. My my natural inclination is not to be aggressive and to be confrontational mm. and uh, mm. unpleasant um, and disagreeable. And so I don't know. I used to be like really gung ho and aggressive and ask people for things up front. And like if you read the Forty Eight Laws of Power or Machiavelli's Print the Prince, you think that's the way to do it. But honestly, with music now. I'm just in a state of I'm friends with everyone I work with and all these amazing opportunities have been given to me. Mm. I, I, so mm. I didn't even ask for the film composing stuff. A friend who I took headshots for when I was shooting photography professionally called me one day and was just like, Hey, I remember you played the piano. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I, I used to. And they're like, I got a movie I'm working on. Can I like talk to you about it? So we just got coffee and hung out. And that friend is uh, Dan Nakamura. He's known as his, his producer name is Dan the Automator. And he produced like the gorillas. Um, mm-hmm. And like, so he's like a big hip hop producer. And I'm just like this rando piano player. And we worked on this movie together during the pandemic. We had a great time. Like, during the pandemic, we quarantined for like 20 days each. And I went to his house in the Bay Area and we recorded this like synth electric, p- the synth piano, op- like synth orchestral album for fun. Like we never mm-hmm. released it, but it was like, it was just fun, you know? And I think right. like once I entered the state of like, I'm just going to have fun with my friends. Right. And I think if I'm a good person and mm-hmm. I'm kind Mm-hmm. And I surround myself with people who have similar values mm-hmm. and, but I still work really hard and I know I'm good at what I do. I think the good things will come and that this way of building the career has been way more enjoyable than like yeah. when I was going for like $20 million evaluations for a startup. Right. Like I, mm. like people are like, Oh, like who, you know, who did you, which tree did you climb to get the gig? And I said, literally none of them. Like it was falling into my hands. I'm just super grateful. And that's, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you touch upon that. I mean, there's, you know, I feel like there's something that uh, to be said. I mean, we just passed the month of June, again, Asian right. American, Pacific Islander celebration. But, you know, I'm so thrilled, number one, that we're able to acknowledge and address and openly talk about mental health. Yesterday, I was recording an episode uh, mm-hmm. for the other podcast I'm managing right now called Enabled Disabled. And the host and I started uh, an interview to talk about the progress behind the scenes. And I was very open about mental health. And especially for us growing up, um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm sort of like first generation. I, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way, like it's so weird. They combine, like if your parents are first generation, you can consider, you can be considered as first or second generation, but I'm certainly yeah first gen and there is enormous amount of pressure that that comes oh, with yeah. it so um i'm i'm really glad and i'm even happier for the fact that you've chosen a path where you can actually be you and and not worry yeah. about the analytics the likes the comments the shares but doing something you love and attract people who come to you for you and for your by the way, as a content creator, it's not just the music you produce, but the way you work with them, the process and yeah, yeah. Um, right. Like it's, it, it's, it's so interesting. So um, I know that we're running a little bit out of time. What are some of the things that you really want to share, but I haven't asked or haven't really gotten to? No. Yeah. Um, I would say though, if you're going to pursue an artistic endeavor, do it wisely. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not making that much money right now. I'm going to be totally honest. This piano on loan from Steinway, you know, like all the equipment I have has been with me for the last decade of collecting and saving. Mm -hmm. And I'm living off of my savings right now. You know, I, I saved aggressively in my mid twenties. And so, you know, I can write out till next year. Mm -hmm. And so like, I didn't take the plunge just willy nilly without planning. Like I worked a day job. I was a director at Caltech. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I guess I want to brag a little bit. I was oh, I'm the first Asian American male director in Caltech history. So what, what kind of director? I mean, music? I was, or? I was a, no, no, I was a very, you know, typical, it was a very corporate higher ed job, <laughs> director of strategic partnerships at a, the alumni association. Gotcha. And, 
Yeah, I quit. I quit in four. I was the fastest quitting Caltech employee of all time, too. I quit in four months. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know, I took day jobs. I did consulting gigs. I saved a lot. And yeah. that's why I can do what I want to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, too, is you have to have tools. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to pursue music full time, you have to be good. Mm-hmm. Like the reason why I can do film composing is, yeah, I could sit down in one day and write a whole movie. But but that's because of, I mean, like I remember at Harvard, the first week of class, you know, our teacher played a recording of a Bach prelude in fugue. Oh, I don't remember this either. I don't remember it. But anyways, he played this recording with this Bach prelude in fugue, and then he's like, notate it. That was the first, that was the intro to theory class. And it was so intense. And I, I like, I did not do well academically at Harvard, but I remember studying so hard and like, we had to, like, we had to write Mozart sonatas, you know, we had to write like Chopin nocturnes and etudes mm-hmm. as like undergrads without a master's degree. But I, that training is so invaluable because now I work incredibly fast, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then the years of classical playing, when I play more modern stuff, like I can play, I can play a major scale at the concert level without thinking because I did so much practice or like I can play like a Chopin A2. totally accurately but like i can still play without like really practicing but that's not because i'm a prodigy it's because Mm -hmm. i've been working on this stuff for a really long time so i think that's Mm -hmm. the number one advice i have for young people who want to pursue the arts is if you want to do it full time you have to be good at it Mm -hmm. you don't have to be the best at it because that's impossible Mm -hmm. but you have to be really good at it you have to be proficient Mm -hmm. you have to have the money saved up if you don't have the money saved up, there is nothing wrong with taking a day job and side hustling. Yeah. You're going to have to make some sacrifices. Like maybe you can't really go on dates all the time yeah. or you're going to have to explain to your significant other. Like, hey, I know we were planning to like da 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 da, but like maybe we'll <laughs> like I need to like practice. Like there's yeah. there's, there's going to be those tough conversations if that's a goal you want to pursue. Mm. So be prepared for that. Um don't have lofty expectations. Right. Mm. Really live in the present. Really like focus on what you're working on at the moment. Be kind to everyone because you never know. Like I just got a gig in October from a family friend I've known since I was six years old. And she's never offered this gig to me. Mm. And so like you never know. And I'm so incredibly grateful to her. And, and so, like, you never know where these opportunities are going to come from. So always be kind to people, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could have, like, my checklist would just be, like, practice. Like, be good at what you do. Be kind to people. Live in the present. Lower your expectations so you don't get disappointed. Take care mm-hmm. of your mental health. Because if you're mentally unstable, even yeah. a little bit, it will come through your art. It will come mm-hmm. through your work and your relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Um, get paid. Mm. don't be a freelancer in the sense of getting things done for free get paid mm-hmm. even if it's five dollars like yeah. design like design work i charge like when i do brand consulting if i'm doing a whole brand identity with like brand values and everything and you come out with a brand guideline my mm-hmm. rate is 50k person mm-hmm. that's my personal rate and i don't change it and people are like mm-hmm. well that's too expensive and i say okay go to an agency they're mm-hmm. going to charge you half a million we're going to mm-hmm. do the same work, but that's why I'm worth 50 K just for one person. Cause I will do what the agency does, but mm-hmm. it's just me. And I would, I do it f- five times faster. But like the reason why I can charge that as an individual is cause I have all this experience. And so like, don't devalue work, get paid. Um, uh, like, and be an entrepreneur, learn everything just mm-hmm. because you're an artist doesn't give you permission to not be a booking manager or learn about how to do public speaking, or learn about how to build your own website, how to build your own social following, learning about photography. Like, 
-hmm. you should be open. Like I, I will never forget what Yo-Yo Ma said to me. Yo-Yo, we were doing a masterclass and Yo-Yo said, like, like someone asked Yo-Yo, do you think anything's boring? And he said, if you genuinely believe in the creative process and mm -hmm. the joy it brings humanity, there's no way you can find anything boring. Mm -hmm. the boringness comes from the lack of good delivery but the mm -hmm. subject no, no subject in the world is boring and it's like that idea of tapping into that present moment fluidity of exploration and so like always be in that state as much as you can mm -hmm. and and also it's okay to sometimes not do anything like i used yeah. to be so busy yeah. and i had to always be super productive i plan like in college, I had my days planned from 5 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day. Mm. And and I even planned my sleeping time, how much lunch I could have and all that bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I realized like, no, oh, what an idiot. And like even now, I don't have that schedule anymore. And I'm way more productive Yeah, in the long run. So anyways, that's my little ramble on that. No, I love the finals. I guess like a rapid fire summaries of things that you learned. Another, um, I would say a call to action for people thinking about pivoting their careers. I think what George mm -hmm. just mentioned is if you have a specific skill, you come from a, you know, corporation, like for me, that was project management. I was known for that. I knew mm -hmm. I could demand a lot more for that. So I would use my skill A to get paid like yeah. George did with design work. And then I will feel, I will basically use that budget to feel into yeah. my creative endeavors. Um, that was really, really important. Um, so that is something to know. And then I think the final thing was also, you need a buffer, you need space in your life in general. Um, and yeah. that also applies to moms, caregivers out there. Uh, you need space to think independently, to think comfortably when our lives are just too packed. And some of that is, it is a little superficial too. You look at your schedule, like, do I really need to be this, this busy? Do I have to say right. yes to everything? Right. Like I, I totally agree with you. I feel like I'm, I'm operating uh, on a different level as a result of uh, creating space and, and buffer in my schedule and not thrive or brag about how busy I am all the time. Yeah. So, people who brag right. about how busy they are like now I look at, I'm like, that is not something to brag about, man. Like that just sounds miserable. Oh, I will say yeah. one piece of advice. If you're Asian American, cause I yeah. can say this cause um, I'm Asian <laughs> cause we are. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this show, so I think I did it a couple times. So I apologize. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Uh, so I would just say, move the fuck out. Like, yeah. don't live at home. And the, I'm not saying that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, if you were not super, if if you came from a non-immigrant family scenario, like maybe you could live at home. The reason why I say that is because for six thousand years of East Asian history speaking up and having your own voice never existed okay this idea of taking care of your mental health and well-being has never existed in pious culture feudalist culture this is the biggest it's not just a culture shock it's a it's a complete like Mm -hmm. generational uh ideological spiritual <laughs> shock to your parents yeah. so if you're stuck at home and you went to an ivy league or you went to a great school like you went to purdue or ucla or whatever and you go home you quit your day job as an engineer and now you're going to be a chef in their <laughs> heads you're just you're just a piece of shit like they're <laughs> and they're going to remind you every day you live at home and then you're going to get angry. You're going to hate your parents. You're going to think they're the worst humans in the world. It's going to tear. And like, you'll, you'll, you'll end up like every great Asian creative that we look up to, or every minority creative who came from an immigrant family in America, at least not almost all of them have terrible relationships with their parents. It's because of that. And so like my biggest advice is find a way to move the fuck out because the moment you leave the home and there is that physical barrier yeah. And, you know, Asian parents are like, well, I haven't seen you in two weeks. You don't love me anymore. No, that's not true. I just don't want to see you because you're crazy. And like, but then when you create the distance, yeah, you'll do miracles. You have, yeah, like what you're talking about, Faye, like you have your space. Mm -hmm. um, they will respect you a lot more because Asian people love money. And yeah. if you're not spending your parents' money, that just demands <laughs> respect. So 
I would say even like specifically for people and immigrant families in the United States, if you're going to be an artist, yeah, you have to save up even more money to live on your own. Oh, amen. Like I will say, if I didn't, if I didn't leave uh, my parents' place, like I would not be doing the music I do now because mm-hmm. like they would be like, "Oh, you're not playing classical." Even when I was playing classical, like this is how mm-hmm. tough it is to be in a household like that. Like even when I was playing classical and I was like selling out concerts around the world, they mm-hmm. would still criticize my playing. And like, do they have any basis of telling me how to play Rachmaninoff? No, but they think they do because they put the food on the table. But the moment you take that power away, mm. what are they going to say? And the only thing that's left is unspoken respect. So yeah. that's another thing I would add to the list is if you're an immigrant uh, kid of an immigrant or you're Asian, yeah, move the fuck out. That's <laughs> No, I love I mean, that's a transparency. I mean, yeah. right? Like people don't hear about that. And I'm really glad you brought it up. Mm-hmm. And it's very different now. I'm in a, you know, I lived away from my parents since I was 17, 16 years old. I mean, literally yeah. 8,000 miles away. But now I bought a house and it happened to be a big house where I invite my mom in. She tells me how proud she is of me every single day. I take care of her. She gets to do oh, her artwork. Thank you. But frankly, this relationship that I'm witnessing with my mom, sorry, I just, I, I don't know. I can't tell you there's a second relationship like that. Um, and right. I, I, right. It, it, you have yeah. to choose the right people. The same thing. Like you can't choose your family, you choose your friends, but if your family doesn't understand, uh, what you're doing, you know, podcasting being one of them, it doesn't matter if you're Asian or not Asian, people tend to ask you during family get togethers, like how much oh, are yeah. you getting paid? How much money oh, are you getting paid? What's that fun thing you were doing again? Like I'll Bobby. never forget. I I played I played piano one time for the now president Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was sharing with the Asian aunties, like, I gotta play for the vice president. You know, yeah. I played what did I play for Joe? Uncle Joe. I played I, I played the third ballad. If you like Chopin. So I, I played the third ballad. And I'm like, you know, like what an honor, right? And the first thing those aunties asked was, did you get paid? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's what you got from that? I just played for the second most powerful human being in the entire free world and, like, one of the most beloved politicians and, yeah. and a guy who's been fighting for civil rights and mm-hmm. all these, like, things since he was 30, like, the young, one of the youngest congressperson in American history. And you asked me if I got paid and it's mm-hmm. the whole value system. It's yeah. Just not like I'll even, I'll never forget when I even got into Harvard, I thought like that was the, that's the Asian mm-hmm. dream. Right. Right. And then I have my parent, like I have my dad tell me like, you know, going to Harvard doesn't mean anything if you can't make money. And I was just yeah. like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, that yeah. Chinese word fool. Like that word fool has fucked up like all of Chinese thinking because like fool is not really like truly like fruitfulness, like the way America, like, you know, we have translated fool. Fool Mm -hmm. has the word money in it, Mm -hmm. you know? It's about money. It's not about like values and ethics and and, and, like, like, like all these like lofty things that we've like put in like anime or like avatar the last airbender it's more like it's actually like money i mean it's <laughs> you know it's money? True. <laughs> you know not every single family is uh, you know not every single family is like that i've known poor families who you know uh don't even think about money all that much uh and trying to support one another but it's true i think Whenever it comes to money, same thing with analytics, likes and followings, there's a single number you can yeah. look at and measure people and put people in boxes. Yeah. But, you know, I think another key takeaway, like George said, is uh, you got to find your own friends, got to find like-minded people who you that really jive with you, that you can do work with, collaboration, yeah. speaking of which, right, that's why we're here. And I would encourage anybody, it doesn't matter how small your platform is, trying to not just promote, the word is promote, but celebrate other people's work and, you know, put them, if you're a YouTuber or a podcaster, you know, you're naturally can invite other people to join you in and um, to give people an opportunity to talk about their stories, their backgrounds. So I'm so grateful, George. I know you and I can talk about this forever. 
and I appreciate the transparency. Um, and hopefully you'll come back and join me again. No, yeah, it'd be an honor. Hopefully we could uh, do one in person, you know, yeah. uh, that would be fun. And it'd be cool to do one with a piano in person. And uh, yeah. no, thank you, Faye, for always thank you for the opportunity. But more importantly, it's just great to catch up and uh, um, wish you the best, wish you and your audience the best. And thank you. Uh, if you are not already subscribed to any of Faye's channels, please give her a follow on LinkedIn, YouTube, and all her socials. Don't forget to visit her website or just Google Faye's World Media. Um, <laughs> this show is not, I don't know if there is a sponsor, but if there isn't, if there is a sponsor that would like to sponsor Faye, please give Faye a follow oh. and contact her business email. I think, <laughs> that, Thank you for the outro. I didn't even do I anything. Remember. Oh, thank you, George. Okay, I'm going to take off offline, take us offline and see you guys. Check out my calendar, faceworld.com forward slash events. You're going to find out all the independent artists, content creators, creative entrepreneurs joining me in the upcoming month and ending stream now. Bye.